0: Well, as they're finishing the hug fest stuff here, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them and turn to Exodus. We'll be jumping into chapter 13 and actually 14 today. And no, I did not misspeak. I actually said Exodus. I did not say Luke. Some of you might have thought that I was mistaken. There actually is other books in the Bible outside the Gospel of Luke, which we've been in for quite some time now. And so uh, this morning, we're actually going to start a new series that we are going to walk through through this next month. Uh, Talking about ordinary people extraordinary lives And that is the concept that you and I have to understand that god always uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things Sometimes you and I think that god works off of the way we work when it comes to employment or it comes to kind of uh, assessing people and that is that somehow god looks across the face of the earth and he tries to find the most qualified person, the person with the best resume, the best looking, best gifted, best skilled person and says, okay, I choose to use them. God doesn't work anywhere close like that, anything close to that. You and I work that way. You and I look at people and we rate people that way. But God takes ordinary people like you and me and when we surrender ourselves to him, he does extraordinary things through our lives. That is the story of God. That is the, the pages of scripture are filled with people who are ordinary, just like you and I. But they're also filled with experiences and encounters and events that are super beyond the capacity that you and I have to the level that is extraordinary. And so we want to take some time to look at some people, especially some folks in the Old Testament, to remind ourselves that there is an Old Testament and a New Testament, you know, the beginning of the Bible. So we're in the second book in Exodus. And want to take some time today to talk about Moses. And one of the, the particular encounters with Moses and Israel has to do with their freedom that they experienced coming out of Egypt and God leading them to the Red Sea and then parting that sea to bring freedom to them. And I want to take some, t- some time to talk about the opportunity that God created for Israel to see his extraordinary work in their lives. But before we, we get to that, I just want you to understand the way that God works sometimes is that we, we perceive far less than I believe than what God actually does. There are things that God does or wants to do that you and I have a tendency to miss because either we're not paying attention or we somehow don't see God at work because of various circumstances. God is always at work. He never takes a break. He never takes a breather. He's always at work in our lives. He's always at work around the world because ultimately his goal is to reconcile all people back to him through Jesus so that people can spend eternity with him. That's God's goal. So he's always at work. And that means through every circumstance that humanity finds itself in, everything that you and I go through individually, everything that we see across the globe, good, bad, and indifferent, God is at work in all those things. Because we use this term called God's sovereignty, which means basically God is in control of all things. And there's nothing that happens outside of God's control, even though we would perceive it to be that way. Here's some examples about God's opportunities. Over the last two decades... There's been an an incredible transformation in the nation of Uganda. I've told you before, I've traveled there. 20 years ago in Uganda, the AIDS epidemic was through the roof. In fact, across the globe, if you took one country and said, where is AIDS the biggest issue? It was Uganda. The percentages were crazy in terms of the number of people either who were HIV positive or had a a loved one or had lost a loved one to AIDS. It it, It was devastating a nation and it couldn't be stopped. And at the same time, God awoken his church in Uganda to do something about it. So the churches in Uganda began to actually care tangibly for people and actually started programs to actually help young people understand about the dangers of what was going on with HIV AIDS and how to prevent it and all these kinds of things. And over the last two decades in Uganda, millions of people have come to know Jesus because of the AIDS crisis. Their estimates vary, but right now they say between 40 and 50% of the population of Uganda are born again Christians. That's crazy. That's the result of a deadly disease called AIDS. We would say, well, how, wait, how God, how could you cause that? God orchestrated that for his opportunity to bring people to him. Haiti, the same thing. We all know about the earthquake that happened a few years ago in Haiti. Haiti, a nation that's always struggled in poverty, always struggled with issues, is devastated by an earthquake. Thousands of people lose their lives and people say, how can God allow this to happen? The same thing the last couple of years that happened in Uganda has happened to Haiti. Millions of people in Haiti have come to know Jesus in the last few years because God used this opportunity to do something extraordinary in the lives of people. So the church became the church and people came to Jesus. It happens over and over and over again, but on a more specific level, It happens in our lives when you and I are willing to open our eyes and embrace the opportunities that God has placed in front of us For him to do something extraordinary in us So as we look into these passages, i'm not going to read through both chapters There's too much there But i'm going to highlight as we walk through starting in chapter 13 about this story as I mentioned so Israel in bondage for 400 years in egypt as slaves And through plagues and through the series of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then finally that moment of softening when he finally lets Israel go to go and worship in the desert. So he releases them. He sets them free. They set out on this journey. And as we'll see as the story unfolds, God leads them to what is perceived as a dead end. He leads them to the Dead Sea or the Red Sea. He leads them to a place where there is no out. Pharaoh's army on one side, Red Sea on the other side. But it's in this moment, it's in this opportunity that God orchestrates things to do something extraordinary so with understanding that that's the context of the story that we're in i want to just begin with four things from these chapters of these verses about recognizing god's opportunity recognizing when god is at work in the circumstances and how he works in our lives look at chapter 13 if you would just first for the first for a couple of verses verse 17 and verse 18 which tells you and i something about god's opportunity the way he works is that ultimately he intentionally designs it He orchestrates our life. He designs our life in a way so he can do things extraordinarily. Let me explain. So look at verse 17 and verse 18. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. So you'd think that Obviously, the quickest way between two points is the shortest way. So why not take the shortest way to get where you're going? But God didn't do that. God intentionally knew what was going on in Israel. And he thought if they encounter the Philistines on their way out of Egypt, they may want to run back to Egypt. So I'm going to take them the long way. And I'm going to actually take them to a place that's going to lead them to the Red Sea. I am orchestrating something so that they're going to end up at a place where they're stuck. They're actually going to take a turn orchestrated by God down a dead end road that they have no options and they're stuck. Think, wow, I am so glad I came to church to hear that's the way that God works. But understand, God does the same thing to you and I. He designs our lives, He orchestrates our lives he is sovereign in our lives, which means he is always at work orchestrating moments for you and I to realize that God wants to take our ordinary life and do something extraordinary. He's designed us that way. But see, we are stuck at the ground level of our life. And all we see is what's in front of us. We can't see around the next corner. We can't see over the next peak. All we see is what is in front of us. And so sometimes we get frustrated thinking, God, are you at work at all? But because god is sovereign because god is in control that every moment of every day when we choose to surrender ourselves to him He is working out something He is working out his plan because if we truly believe god is in control Then everything that happens into our in our lives good bad or indifferent god is in control of Sometimes that's hard for us to embrace But if you and I had god's perspective, we would see that it all makes sense because God is not, he lives at, at the ground level, but he has the perspective to see everything because he's orchestrating things in our life. My cousin and I, a number of years ago, we were camping as a family with my grandparents and, and uh, we were in the Sequoia area. And for, that, that, for some reason, that, that time of year, there was, it was dry, it was a drought. And so we couldn't use water that we could actually get from spigots. We, but it, that, that particular week, strange, we were in a drought, but it poured rain. And so there were canvas uh, cabins all over the campground that we were and the canvas would actually hold the water. And so we got bored because it was raining that week and there wasn't a whole lot to do. We didn't want to go hiking in the rain. So we went from cabin to cabin and we would poke the canvas and get all the water that we could collect in all the, any kind of bucket or tub or anything that we could get. And the reason we were doing that is that we found this hillside and we had a shovel and so we actually dug our own river. We actually dug and we designed a river that would go all the way down this hillside and at the bottom it would get caught in this, in this dam and like a lake. And so we had spent time kind of figuring out which way it was going to go and how it was going to turn and how we designed it so when, when the water hit a certain point which way the water would go and so we dug it that way and then we spent hours going around the campground collecting all this water. And so when we finally had all the water we got to the top of the hill and we dumped it in and it was the coolest thing to watch. Because as we dug it out, we had designed exactly where the water was supposed to go. And sure enough, the water followed the path that we had laid out for it until it all got down. And the dam that we built was big enough and strong enough to hold all the water until it soaked into the ground and we had to start all over again. Of course, that's the fun of it. But to have that kind of perspective, to realize the way that you had designed something is the way that it was actually working out. See, that's God's perspective. God looks at our lives and you and I need to understand God is not bound by time. Therefore, God is not in this moment and stuck here and can't see the next one. He is above time. He sees the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. He sees the way he's laid out your life and therefore he has designed your life in a certain way that he, if you choose to follow him, he will lead you to places that seem like you're at a dead end. He will lead you to places that you don't understand. He will lead you to places that are beyond you. Why? Because the God of the universe wants to demonstrate his power in extraordinary ways to get our attention so that we'll trust him, so that we'll understand him, so that we'll see his work. So he designs it. Second thing that it's true, look at, jump over to chapter 14. Because also recognizing God's opportunity means that we have to understand that it looks just like a dead end. Verse 9 and 10, it says, The Egyptians, so all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, this is in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 14, Said pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Herorith, opposite of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Just picture yourself in this moment. Say you're an Israelite. You just came out of 400 years of bondage. Now you're, you're heading out into what you think is this great opportunity and you find yourself one direction, you're facing a sea. You turn around to find you're facing Pharaoh's army. You can't feel really good about your situation at that moment. In fact, you're starting to question, which we'll get in a moment, what in the world has God up to? God sets us free only to lead us to this place, a dead end. There is no opportunity to change. There is no way that we can get out of this. There is no way that we can turn and fight the Pharaoh's army that is well-fortified and they're well-armed and they're well-trained and all we are is a bunch of slaves that are now out here stuck. You think, well, it's a great opportunity to get mad and to point the finger at God and to question, is God even at work? But you and I need to trust and understand that God will actually lead you and I to dead ends. Somehow we get this theology that when we give our lives to jesus all of our problems disappear And that anything that's difficult or challenging or what we would perceive to be bad in our life Can't possibly be from god. It can only be from our own flesh or from the devil But you can see in this in this circumstance god intentionally led them to a dead end He led them to a place where they couldn't do anything for themselves He led them to a place where they could not change their circumstances. They were helpless Helpless and God did that on purpose. God orchestrated things. Because so many times you and I think that when we, pers- when we walk through something difficult or something bad happens to us, what comes to our mind is that can't possibly be God. God would never allow that to happen. But if God is truly in control, even when the enemy is in operation, God has allowed that to happen. Because even the, en- the enemy is controlled by God. Because there's nothing beyond God's reach. God is sovereign. God is in control. And if we believe that, in everything that happens, God is allowed to happen or is orchestrated to happen for a purpose, even when we reach the dead end in life. And I think at one moment or another, maybe even today, many of you feel like that. You've come to a place where you feel absolutely stuck. And you've tried everything you can within your power to try to change your circumstances, to try to change or orchestrate things. And everything you try falls apart. It doesn't work. And so you're stuck. You're stuck at this dead end. But instead of becoming frustrated, what you need to realize is that if you've surrendered your life to follow Jesus, then you've reached that dead end on purpose. God has you there for a reason. God hasn't left you. He hasn't walked away. He isn't taking a break. He hasn't forgotten about you. He has you there because he wants to take your ordinary life and he wants to do something extraordinary beyond what you can do. So you have to understand to see God's opportunity, you and I need to realize that in life, when we take that turn down an unmarked, one-way, dead-end street, that God is in the midst of that. That God is there. God is present. God is present in our failure, in our brokenness, in our disease, at the end of life. All those things, God is present because God is sovereign. And God is orchestrating things. It doesn't mean that you and I understand it. It doesn't mean that we like it. It means that we trust Him. And we believe that He is up to something in our lives. Third thing, going on in verse four, or chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Another thing that's true about recognizing God's opportunity is that we find ourselves complaining. Verse 11, it says, "They said to Moses, "Wasn't it because there were no grave, or was it because there was no, no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die?"?" <laughs> that's amazing. What have we done? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They never said that because they were complaining in Egypt, too. They're complaining about slavery and oppression and things being unfair and not having enough supplies to build what Egypt, the Egyptians wanted them to build. And so then they get out there and they begin to complain you think, well, rightly so. I mean, they've gotten to the Red Sea. They can't go. And then now they got the Pharaoh's army. So they start to complain. Why did you bring us out here? They're getting mad at Moses. And really when they're getting mad at Moses, they're getting mad at God. And they're complaining to Moses and God, why did you bring me to this place? Anybody ever said that to God? I have. Why did you lead me out here? Why did you make it so difficult for me? You start to complain. You start to point the finger. You start to get frustrated. You, need, you and I need to realize not every time because some of us are professional complainers that need to be freed from that But other times when you find yourself complaining You may be complaining because you're right at the doorstep of god's opportunity in your life And you don't know where to turn and you don't know what to do And so the only thing you do in human nature is you start complaining about your circumstance So you blame god you blame other people you blame things around you because you have to find some reason why you're stuck And many times we don't recognize the reason that we've started to complain Is because god is pushing something deep within us He has gotten us to our limit and is saying by my extraordinary power. I'm going to push you beyond your own limit But that's why you're complaining Because you can't see it. You can't understand it and what you see in front of you is too hard So all you're left to do with is complain And so israel starts to complain Because it's too difficult. It's too hard. They're stuck. There's no opportunity my first and my last backpacking trip of my life happened when I was about 10 years old. You can tell I'm a big backpacker. It's my one story. So my uncle, and this is my, the father of the cousin I was hanging out with in Sequoia, they were a big backpacking family. I mean, literally, they have backpacked over, in the, over the world. They've gone to, like, Nepal. and I mean, the, thing, the only thing they haven't done yet is climb Everest, which I'm sure by the end of their lifetime that'll happen, too. But they love to backpack. They love to be outdoors. And so they said, hey, let's go backpacking. So my dad and I and my cousin and then my uncle, we went on this backpacking trip. We were in the Sequoia area. And and so we mapped it out, and I was excited about it, my first backpacking trip. And so we get out, and we're on the trail, and it's pretty warm. It's about 90, low 90s that day. And, and uh, so I had my backpack. And so the first mile was, like, on this flat, like, nice trail and trees around, you are like, this backpacking thing is easy. This is so much fun. This is going to be great. And then after the first mile, I noticed that the, the, the trail started to come a little bit more on an incline. It started to go up. I'm like, oh, I could still handle this. And But then about a half mile, and I realized that the incline actually led up to a mountain. And on this mountain, there were these switchbacks that just kept going on for, like, eternity. It's like, you know, you couldn't see where they ended. So we started up those, and it was tiring, and it was hot, and it was kind of dry, and so about halfway up, I started to complain. I mean, I, 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 I did not like this. I mean, where was the fun, even, you know, nice level ground with the beautiful trees and the nice breeze? That was gone an hour and a half ago, and now we're climbing up these switchbacks, and I'm complaining, and so my uncle's leading the hike, leading the back, so he's in front, then my cousin, then my dad, and then there's me kind of dragging behind. And so I start complaining to my dad. I'm like, Dad, this is too hard. This is no fun. I don't want to do this. I want to turn around and go back to the car. So I'm going on and on, and I'm just, you know, I mean, just working my dad at the back here, just, you know. <laughs> so finally he turns around and he goes, You know what? Let me just take your backpack. I'm thinking, Phew, Thank you. So I start to take off my backpack. The moment my dad said, Let me take your backpack, my uncle at the head, at the front, stopped in his tracks. He turns around and he looks at me and he says, Oh no. He said, if you go backpacking with me, you carry your own pack. And I was stunned because I had one, off, one of the, the straps off and he said, no, 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 put that back on. I was stunned. I said, really? And he goes, oh no, you're going to carry your own weight if you're going backpacking with me. And I'm looking, my dad's right here and I looked at him like, dad, your dad, he's my uncle. You trump him in this situation. And he looked at me, he's all, I'm like, thanks a lot. <laughs> so he looks at me, and goes, you got to keep your pack. I'm like, oh. So I put it on and then we went for another, it seemed like another hundred miles. It was probably like two miles. The backpack felt like hundred pounds. It was probably like 15 pounds. And finally we get to the camp for the night and we sit down and my uncle sits down and he said, I told you so. I said, what do you mean I told you so? He goes, I told you you could do this. I knew that you could do this and I wasn't going to let you take off your backpack because you would have given up too soon and I knew that you could do this so I was going to make sure you kept your backpack on so that you would finish. When I was back on the switchbacks, I hated my uncle. When I was sitting at the campfire that night, I loved him. Because he saw something in me beyond my own capacity that I didn't understand about myself that he pushed me through. And God orchestrates things in our lives. And when you and I begin to complain, realize God's pushing you beyond what's easy for you. And don't stay in the complaint, don't live in that. But realize I'm complaining. That must be because I'm reaching the limit of who I am. I'm coming to the end of my humanity. I'm coming to a place where I don't have the answer and I can't do this on my own. Therefore, God's going to have to break through in my circumstance. God's going to have to do something extraordinary that I know in my ordinary life I can't do. And then begin to look for that. Then the fourth thing about recognizing God's opportunity is that ultimately, verse 21 and 22 of chapter 14, is that God does the impossible. He does what we can't do. Verse twenty-one says, "Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. All that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left." Just pause for a moment with me. Just, I want you to, if you're like me, there's a good side and a bad side to growing up in the church. When you grow up in the church, you hear a story a million times; it becomes common. Anybody relate to that? I have either heard or read this story. I can't count how many times. But I want you just to, just to imagine you're an Israelite standing on the shores of the Red Sea. And Moses raises his hands and the waters part. And not just a little ripple on the water where you have to cross, you know, in, in shallow water. But the water becomes walls. And what was a saturated lake bed becomes dry land. And then you begin to walk. There's estimates that Israel was anywhere between a million and two million people at that time. Let's just say 1.5, right in the middle. A million and a half people walk through a sea. I mean, this goes beyond anything Charlton Heston can do or anything Hollywood can orchestrate. Just imagine what that would have been like. You're standing there and for the most part, you think, I'm dead. My life is over. There's no way any circumstance can change. I can't swim far enough and I can't swim fast enough and the army behind me is the well-fortified and probably the most well-trained army in the world. They're going to annihilate us and then suddenly God's opportunity happens. Just think about that because I think you and I can tap into what Israel was feeling at that moment. What they were experiencing. I have no hope. I have nothing I can do. I'm at the end. And then God does the impossible. See, you and I have to be willing to get to the end to experience the impossible, to experience the extraordinary. See, I think you and I want miracles even though we don't need them. See, I think that there's this, God, do something. Because I just want to see it so you can kind of jump through the hoops for me and then I'll believe. But if you and I are desperate enough and hungry enough and we have reached the end of our humanity and we're so wanting to follow Jesus that we can't go anymore on our own, that God does something, then that's the kind of miracle that you and I need. See, you and I have to come to the place where we outlive what we have in ourselves. And for many of us, probably most of us, If there's something that we really, really want or we need in life, we will find a way to get it. We'll find a way to find a higher paying job or change careers or move or whatever because we're Americans and we're determined to make it happen because we believe in the American dream, which is you can have everything you want. So we strive for that. But never do we live our lives out to the place where we are following Jesus in such a way that we are at the end of everything that we can possibly do. We've reached the end and then God says, let me show you what extraordinary is. Let me show you what I'm about. Let me demonstrate for you something you can't do, but I can do through you. See, you and I don't want to get to that point. We don't want to be desperate. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to be suffering. We don't want to be at the end. We don't want to have lives that are lean. We want to have lives that are full and fulfilling and content and all those things. But it's only at that place where you and I actually reach the end where we see God's extraordinary power work in us. Living on that edge. Of living to the limit of who we are in our humanity. See, because once Israel went through the sea, once they went through on dry land, and they got to the other side, there was 40 years waiting for them because of their own disbelief in what God could do in them. 40 years that God took them to the brink of who they are. To the limit of everything that they had within them, God took them to that point so that eventually he could get them to the promised land. It's amazing. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 4. Talk about taking to the limit. Listen to what it says. It says, Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Capture what that means. For 40 years, Israel wanders around in the wilderness. God's trying to prepare them for the promised land. And for 40 years, to sustain them to the limit of who they are, he allowed the clothes that they wore for 40 years to last. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? can you imagine some of you are thinking man i want a new outfit every day i want to go into my closet and wear something different but god allowed their shoes and their clothes to last and not wear out why so they would rely on him they were in the desert there's no food in the desert so what did god do he gave them manna and they complained so god gave them quail what did they try to do? They tried to stockpile it themselves and God allowed it to rot in their teeth because he was trying to demonstrate to them once again, I am in control. You need to trust me and I will supply for you. He took them to the limit to show them that he was in control, to show them he would do the extraordinary if they relied on him. When you and I don't need God, when we don't rely on him, we can't expect to see the extraordinary in our life. We can't because we don't need it because we have everything that we think we want or need. But when we get to the desperation, to the end of ourselves, then God breaks through and does the impossible. And then, shifting gears, how do you and I respond to this? When God presents the opportunity and God's going to do something, how do we prepare ourselves for these opportunities that God wants to do extraordinary things in our life? So go back a few verses in chapter 14 to verse 13 and 14, because in those couple verses, Moses before... Parts to see before this extraordinary thing happens, he gives Israel some specific instruction that I'm convinced is not just for them standing between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, but it's for us and the way that we respond to the opportunities that God comes to do extraordinary things. The first thing is in the first part of verse 13, and that is that when we are facing and want to respond to what God is doing in our life is that we don't fear. Moses, first out of the gate, says, do not be afraid. Why would Moses say that? Because they were afraid. I would be too. Army on one side, sea on the other, I'm dead. I'm afraid. Moses' first thing he says is don't be afraid. I know your circumstances tell you to be afraid. I know it seems overwhelming, but don't be afraid. And why would Moses say that? Because he knew that if fear drove them, they would miss what God was doing they would respond out of their own flesh and out of their own humanity because fear would drive that. And you and I all, at one point or another in our lives, we find ourselves making decisions and making choices based on fear. I am afraid of this, therefore I run the opposite way. Or I'm afraid of this, so I'm going to do this so I can overcome my fear or I can make my way around my fear and not have to face it. But everything, whether you're trying to face it or run from it, is based on fear. When you and I are following Jesus, things are not based on fear. They're based on faith. They're based on trust. Even though my circumstances should say you should be afraid, I trust that God is in control. I trust that God knows what he's doing. So Moses says to them, and Moses says, through the words of scripture, says to you and I, don't be afraid, even though you think you're supposed to be, and your circumstances dictate that. God is in control. Don't be afraid. That's important. Anybody ever made a bad decision or done something stupid because you were afraid? I've made a ton of bad choices out of fear. Up until middle school, I was controlled by anxiety and fear. Almost every decision I made every day was controlled by a decision based on fear. I would do stupid things. When I was a kid, one of my greatest fears was I would be kidnapped. Anybody have that fear? Every movie or or TV show I watched and there was something about kidnapping, I would be up all night fearing that someone was going to break into the house and take me. Everybody, I watched Benji. Remember the movie Benji that shows that old lamb? That movie freaked me out. and it's, it's supposed to be about a dog, but it was a dog getting kidnapped and a little boy getting kidnapped. It was crazy. Anyway, I freaked out over Benji. Why? Because I was so afraid. In fact, there was a there was one house on our block when I'd walk home from school. You remember the house that... There's always one house on every block that's this freaky, spooky house that everybody tells stories about. There was one on our block, and it was the second house down on the same side of the street as our house. And every time i walk home from school, I would literally cross over walk on the opposite side, and then cross back over just to get away from the creepy, spooky house. Because I thought the kidnappers were all hanging out in there. They were going to get me. People probably watched, why is the kid doing that every day? And then I was a little bit older. School became kind of the, the lightning rod for my fear that everything about school freaked me out. So much to the point, talk about doing something stupid. Every night when I went to bed, I was so afraid of school that I would intentionally make sure that when I lay down on my bed, I was facing the opposite direction of where my school was. Even though my school is a mile and a half away, I faced the opposite direction because I was so afraid. Anybody relate to that stupidity? Or do I just have certain neuroses that I'm confessing to you right now, that you're really concerned about your pastor and he needs counseling, which we all do, I'm sure. But why why would we do things like that? Because of fear. That's why Moses says, Don't be afraid. Because you're going to do something that you shouldn't do. Because your decision is going to be based on fear, not trusting God. Which leads to the second thing that he says in the going on in verse 13 is don't panic. Panic is the outcome of fear. Moses says, Stand firm and you will see the, the, the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. Stand firm, which is don't panic. Because panic's going to make you freak out and react and do something that you're really not going to think clearly through on what you're doing. Because panic is based on a skewed perception of reality around us. It's not seeing God's perspective, it's only seeing our perspective. And therefore, we begin to panic because all we can see is a human answer. All we can see is the human context. We can't see the supernatural. We can't see the extraordinary. We can't see God at work. So we begin to panic. And panic is when fear takes over and you and I just start to react out of instinct. And that's when we do, we make terrible decisions in life. That's when we do crazy things. That's when we do things that cost us and cause pain and cause more severe difficulties in our life that we don't need to face because we reacted and we panicked and we did something that we shouldn't have done, something that we regret. Panic is that gut reaction that we react without thinking we do and then we think and that's when we get into trouble You can go and check this out on youtube later I'm, not, I'm not going to play it but it's been repeated over and over again But a number of years ago, I think that, I don't know if it's the first guy who ever did it But maybe the first guy who filmed it Guy was driving down the highway. You might have seen this and his wife is sitting in the passenger seat. She's asleep And so he's doing 65 70 miles an hour. He decides it would be a good idea To film himself because he comes up on a semi that's being hauled and it's being hauled backwards. So the front of the semi is facing his car while it's being towed down the highway. So he pulls up and he goes, this is a great opportunity to freak my wife out. So he starts filming himself and he explains what he's going to do. And so he starts to accelerate to get up behind the semi that's facing them. And just before they get like 10, 15 feet in front of the back of the truck, he grabs his wife's shoulder and starts shaking her and screaming, we're gonna die! And she opens her eyes and all she sees is the front of a semi in front of her. It's hilarious. She freaks out and starts swinging and flailing and just doing all kinds of crazy things. Why? Because panic took over. Of course, it's funny to watch. It's not funny if you're the passenger sitting there and you wake up to a semi in your face. By the way, she went on a TV show later, and she, she pranked him good, and she got him, and, and just to make up for it, because it was mean, but it was funny. I think it has like nine and a half million hits on YouTube. It's funny. It's hilarious. But it's because of panic. And you and I don't have to have a semi facing us like that to panic, but you and I have moments in our life when we look back and think, I freaked out. I lost control. I didn't think through what I was doing, and I did something stupid that now I regret. What Moses was saying to the people was saying, don't panic because if you panic, then you're going to do something that you're going to regret. And then you're going to miss the power of God and the extraordinary opportunity that he's creating for you right now. Because he says, stand firm. Why? Because if you stand firm, you're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. But if you fear and you panic, you're not going to see this. Because their panic was going to lead them to do the next thing which Moses told them not to do. Go on to verse 14. Responding to God's opportunities means that we don't fight. Moses also said, "The Lord will fight for you." Why? Because they're afraid. They're going to go into panic mode, and panic mode means we better fight. We better take matters into our own hands. We can't swim. We can't. We're going to drown. So we better take on the, the the Egyptians. We better go to battle. And God didn't want them to do that. He said, "God God's going to win this one for you." In fact, listen. Going on, look at the towards further into verse or chapter fourteen. Look at verse nineteen and twenty. It says the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of them, in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. So God was in front of them. Now he's behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Israel or Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. What was God saying? I'm in the front of you. I'm in the back of you. I've got you covered. I'm going to win this for you. I'm in control. So Moses says to the people, don't fight. God's going to fight for you. God's going to win this one. God says to you and I, when you reach a dead end, when you're in over your head, when you, when you finally reach the end of your humanity, don't fight. See, the instinct in us is to fight, is to defend, is to make it happen, is to take take matters into our own hands because that's the only thing we're left to do. And so we have a tendency to react that way. And so we want to take our take on the battle. The problem is, is that the ultimate battle has to be won by God. It can't be won by us. And when we try to engage, engage a battle that only God can win, we will always lose. But God says, I'm going to win this one. And that's why when you and I get to those moments where we feel like, how did I get here? How did this happen? Why am I here? And there are no answers. You and I need to understand that God's saying, it's not on you to make this happen. It's on him. He will win the battle. So maybe you have a life-threatening disease. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe the doctor's given you so much time to live. And there's that sense in you, I'm going to fight it. And that's good. And you should go through the the steps that you want to go through to sustain your life. But you need to understand something. God is in control. And God has determined the number of days that you will live on this planet. And you don't have to win the battle over cancer because if you've given your life to Jesus, even if you die, cancer still loses. Because Paul said it, to live as Christ, to die if you know Jesus, is gain. Death doesn't even have any hold on us. That's why when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he took the sting of death away. It has no power. Because ultimately that means that I can be okay that if I'm facing death, I can still be okay before God. I still don't have to fight it. It's not means that you and I have some fatalistic attitude and we give up on life, but realize God is the one that wins the battle. And if God wants you to be here, you'll be here. If he wants to call you home, he'll call you home. Because he's in control. He's sovereign. He's already orchestrated the details of your life. And If you surrender him and trust him in that, know that whatever you and I face... God is in control and he can be trusted. See, if you and I fight, we become like Peter. We become like the negative side of Peter. You know, Peter was great because we can relate to Peter, but Peter made a lot of mistakes because Peter had that fight mentality in him. He tried to fight Jesus when Jesus said, oh, by the way, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And Peter stepped in front of him and says, oh, no, no, you can't die. And then the one thing you never want to hear the Son of God say about you, get behind me, Satan, when he looks you in the eye. That's not something you want him to say to you. in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying and then the guards come to, to arrest Jesus, remember what Peter does? Peter pulls out a sword, he cuts off the, the ear of, of the servant of the high priest, and Jesus says, Peter, no. Peter's reaction is what? Fight, defend, take matters into my own hands. Jesus is saying to Peter, no, Peter, I'm in control. Even of my own death, I'm in control. Jesus says, No one takes my life, I lay it down willingly. You and I have to understand God is in control. Jesus was even in control of his own destiny when he walked the planet and that he's in control of our lives. And then the final point going on in verse 14 is that Moses also said this is the final thing that fear, panic, and fight will lead to is he says don't run. Moses said you need only to be still. I'm telling you, I just, I want you to picture what it would be like when you've got Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side and Moses says, oh, just be still. Really? Just, just hang out. Just wait. Yeah. Just be still. That's insanity. There's everything within us would say, no, I can't be still. I have to do something. But God was speaking through Moses to his people and he said, be still. That's all you have to do. So in other words, what God was saying to Israel, all you have to do in this is nothing. That sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Well, come on, God. Let me do something. No, just do nothing. Because if if you're willing to do nothing, I'll show you what I can do that's far beyond what you could do. Just be still. And see, you and I have to understand there's something about being still before God and letting God do what He's going to do that maybe there's moments in our life that if you look back over your life that you let fear, panic, and fight take over and the result was God wanted to do something extraordinary but you never saw it come to pass because you wouldn't be still. You wouldn't just wait. You wouldn't just trust. You got impatient. You took matters into your own hands and you never saw God do what He wanted to do. This story could have ended differently. They could have been in fear and they could have panicked and they could have fought, and then what would have happened is Israel would have ended right there. The story would have ended because Pharaoh's army would have wiped them out. But they were still and they waited, and God does this extraordinary thing in their lives and does something far beyond what they could understand. See, when you and I experience pain or we're at the end or we're frustrated, we want to do something, we react, we panic. It's like one of the times that Jordan got stung with a bee and he comes in the house and he's hopping around on one foot because he's in pain and the stinger's in the bottom of his foot. And I grabbed him, I put him up on the counter and he's still flailing around. I said, Jordan, stop. I said, if you keep flailing around, I can't get the stinger out. And after like four or five tries, finally I could get his eyes and his attention and he stopped. I grabbed his foot and I pulled the stinger out. And it was only after the stinger got removed that the healing could begin. And sometimes you and I are our own worst enemies because we are making it difficult for God to do what he wants to do because we won't be still. Because still means I have to trust. That means I have to let God do what God can do even though I can do nothing. And being still is that acknowledgement. I can't do anything. I have to trust God fully to break through. Israel couldn't do anything to change their circumstance. Only God could do that. So let me close with a few thoughts. In a few moments, the worship team will... Join us again and we'll have an opportunity to participate in communion together But what is god's purpose and opportunities? Why does god orchestrate our lives To bring us to dead ends to pl- to places that stretch us beyond What we can do Going to the end of chapter 14 verse 29 to verse 31 It explains it for us It says but the israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' his servant. That's the summation of the entire story right there. The whole purpose that God didn't take them through the Philistine country the short way, but took them the long way that led them to the Red Sea was so that he could part the Red Sea so that ultimately they would put their trust in him. God wants you and I to understand he's in control. He wants you and I to understand he truly is sovereign, that he oversees our lives, that he orchestrates the, the details and events and the the things that happen to us. Why? Because he wants us ultimately to put our trust in him. But if we fear and we panic and we fight and we run We'll never put our trust in him. We'll still try to figure it out on our own. And therefore, we will be doomed to live a life that's simply ordinary. When all along, God is wanting life to be extraordinary. But it's because he's doing it, not because we're doing it. So as we prepare to have communion in just a moment, I'd like you just to reflect on the opportunity that you and I have. There's four stations set up in the sanctuary, and when the worship team joins us again, and we go back into some songs, you are welcome at any point to get up and to make your way to one of those stations to help yourself to those elements. Um, You don't have to be a member of the church. This could be your first time, but as long as you know Jesus, you understand what you're doing, you're welcome to participate. But I want to explain to you what, what you and I have the opportunity to do in just the next few moments. See, the greatest dead end, the greatest limitation of our humanity is what the bible defines as sin. And that is even in our best efforts, even in at our best in humanity, fall short of what God has purpose for our lives. We fail. And so when it comes to our sin, no matter how hard we try, we can never ever overcome sin. We can never ever ever be good enough. We can never reach the point where we overcome it and we work through it because we in our humanity, we are by nature sinners. That's what we do. We're failures. And sometimes, oh, I'm not a failure. You're hurting my self-esteem. Yep, sorry. All of us are failures. But the good news is that every one of us has the opportunity to come to that moment in life where we realize we get to the end of our failure and realize we can't do anything to change it. And that's when Jesus comes along and through his death on the cross says, this is not the end. You are forgiven and you are freed from your sin now to move forward. Israel came to the Red Sea, and through the power of God, it was parted. You and I come to the end of ourselves and our sin and our humanity. Jesus' death on the cross provides forgiveness that opens the doorway to life. So in the next few moments, when we take the bread and the cup, which Jesus did for his disciples just before he went to the cross, and he said, do this to remember me because he knows humanity forgets, So he says that to us today, remember me, remember that sin is not the end because I've made a way for you to be forgiven. I've taken the debt of your failure, your dead end, and I've taken it on myself so that through the cross, you and I can be forgiven. Sin is not the end because Jesus has overcome it. Death is simply a doorway because Jesus has overcome it. So in these next few moments, when you take those elements, you can find a corner somewhere in the sanctuary or go back to your seat. I just want you to reflect on maybe many of those areas in your life, especially in regard to your own sin and failure, where you know you have reached the end, that you have tried. Maybe it's habitual, addictive behavior, and you've tried and tried and tried, and nothing's working, and you're you're fighting, and you're panicking, and you're doing all these things, and God's saying, Be still. Confess your sin. Let me bring forgiveness and freedom to your life. That you would just bring those and you would confess to him those things. Here's my dead end. Here's the here's the limit of who I am. I can't go any further. And allow what Jesus did on the cross come to bear on that situation so that it no longer looks like a dead end, but you see God's opportunity at work. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your work in our lives. Father, thank you for working through Moses, orchestrating Israel's journey That took them out of bondage in egypt into a dead end because that dead end was an opportunity for you to demonstrate your power To a group of people who needed to trust you And today lord, we know Because you are sovereign because you are in control because you work in our lives You are always orchestrating things so that we have opportunity To step into the opportunities that you are wanting to make extraordinary and so I pray, Lord, in the next few moments as we have an opportunity to come once again to take those elements that you use as symbols, Lord, the bread that represents your body that was broken on our behalf and suffered for us, and that cup which represents your blood, your death, that was in our place, that as we come to that, those elements, those symbols, that we would be reminded again, no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, no matter what dead end that we found ourselves in, we can see beyond that because of your forgiveness. We can see beyond that because of what you've done for us. So that, Lord, as we confess our sin, you would be faithful and just, as you always are, to forgive us, to purify us, to make us right, so that the dead end simply becomes your opportunity to do something extraordinary in our lives. So, Lord Jesus, would you do that and seal that in these next few moments as we remember you through communion. In your name, amen.